0: she's such a threat we choose the right to be who we are we know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom there's a way to live with earth and a way not to live with earth we choose the way of earth it's about power
1: Chante Le Chante, Le Unkipiki Greetings and Good Day and Welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart, it's good for all of us to be here. Today will be a good day. You're listening to First Forces Radio and Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Osopis, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus and the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all to produce First Voices Radio. And Liz Hilf is the producer of First Voices Radio. And Karen Ramirez is our studio engineer. Our guest today, Daryl Leroux, is a French-Canadian scholar and associate professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, whose work on the changing dynamics of white settler identities has been widely published, including his 2019 book Distorted Descent* and the July 14, 2023 American Indian Culture and Research Journal article State Recognition and the Dangers of Race Shifting. This is an excerpt from the article. Since the 1970s, a high-profile movement actively trying to reconstitute the Abenaki people in Vermont has emerged. St. Francis Sokoki Band of Abenakis of Vermont, now Abenaki Nation of Mississippi, based in Swanton in Franklin County, was the first self-identified Abenaki tribe in the state, dating back to its formal incorporation in 1974. Since then, at least 16 other separate entities have emerged in the state to represent Abenaki people, all claiming to be descendants of the hitherto unknown population of Abenaki, who inhabited the state in the mid 19th century, in 2011 and 12, the state of Vermont formally recognized four tribes, all of which have their origins in an original Swanton-based organization. State recognition was a culmination of over 35 years of effort by the Abenaki Nation, a Mississippi or A.N.M., and allied organizations. This, quote, revitalization movement, unquote, as a and called it in its 1982 petition for federal recognition, has led to several significant gains by the organizations, including millions of dollars in state and federal educational funding, lifetime fishing and hunting licenses for members, and authorization for its members to sell products under the Federal Indian Arts and Crafts Act of 1990, More than anything, the tribes have been almost universally welcomed by Vermonters as a salve for the region's history of colonialism. The most notable exception has been vocal and consistent opposition by the actual descendants of the Abenaki people, who inhabited the Green Mountain State for much of the 17th and 18th centuries, organized primarily by Odenac across the border in Quebec. Who maintained that they share no kinship relations whatsoever. I began talking with Daryl LaRue. Daryl LaRue is here with First Forces Radium. Great honor to welcome you. When did you begin your research and what compelled you to continue this research?
2: Oh, okay. So I yeah, I started this research. Um, it kind of I I wouldn't say by coincidence, but it kind of grew organically out of the research I was already doing. So um, I'm French-Canadian from a region um, in in what is considered northern Ontario. And uh, yeah, I I just um, started really uh, through my graduate studies looking at the role that uh, French-Canadians play and played in um, settler colonialism and in contemporary forms of of racism and racial violence. In uh, in Canadian society, uh, and, and in particular, you know, I, I wanted to sort of figure out um, the role that different people in my family have played um, historically, and so that's kind of where my interest, uh, I guess you could say, comes from. Uh, comes from When it comes to uh, genealogy and sort of historical work uh, in the archives, um, that's not. I'm not a historian by uh, by training. Um, I do work more from a sociological, anthropological perspective, but I think it's really important to do some historical work as well. And so, uh, you know, I was researching some of the ways that French Canadians or Quebecois people have, uh, you know, been involved in settler colonialism and are involved in settler colonialism today. And that's really when um, I started to to see that there was uh, this growth of new organizations um in Quebec but also in other parts of Canada and so that led me to write my uh the book that I published and I think our our first interview was after the publication of my book which is called Distorted Descent: White Claims to Indigenous um Indigenous Identity and it was in you know researching my book that I that I really figured out in a way how uh genealogy plays into um this movement today where there are a few hundred thousand um, white French Canadians like myself who are claiming that they're Indigenous, based largely on ancestry in the 1600s. And I think what's most important to, to realize when it comes to the opposition to that movement is that it is opposed um, strongly and vocally by uh, what we call here First Nations. So, uh, you know, Native American tribes in particular, um, uh, throughout the Eastern provinces where this movement is really strong. Um, and so you know since the publication of my book i've continued that line of research but instead of focusing only on the strength of sort of the genealogical records and how they get used um today i'm also looking at the creation of family lore um because i I've, i kind of and you know I'm, I'm sure that you're aware of this and uh, it's, these are the types of stories we hear a lot about the indian princess and and etc etc cetera, et cetera. um and so I realize that sometimes people make these claims um, without any genealogical substantiation or any b- bother doing genealogical work. And it's really just about a story that circulates in a family at a given moment in time, um, and then, you know, sort of becomes uh this, this truth, if you will, that the family carries around. And so we see that with Elizabeth Warren and her story about um, you know, being Cherokee in Delaware, which is not true. Um, and, and a range of others that I've, I've been studying uh, more recently.
1: You know, this, this recent phenomenon I'm, I'm well aware of here in the States, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you're describing something in Canada that that maybe people were, weren't so aware until maybe you brought out, you know, the book came out. And I knew this was going on, but no one was taking a stand to call it out, such as you have Native peoples, in a sense, were not listened to because it's been ongoing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since I found out about Canada, especially about the 60s scoop, as you're aware of, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and especially with the, the the unidentified grave markers of children throughout Canada that's being researched mm-hmm. and uh, un- uncovered now. But I, I'm also wondering, you know, when a person claims to be Métis and the Aboriginal rights movement there, Métis uh-huh. Aboriginal rights movement, the a- Eastern Métis seem to have something a little different a little different flavor, maybe a tact about becoming indigenous, so to speak, Aboriginal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the, the Western Metis have been
2: more or less recognized by other First Nations. Yes. Well, and I think that's what the key is, what you just pointed out. So uh this sort of quote unquote Eastern Metis movement, as I've discussed it in my in my research. Um, it usually involves claims to being Métis. Now, the Métis itself, the word, um, it means mixed in French. Mm-hmm. Um, so on a very basic level, uh, there are people who are saying, well, since I'm mixed going back 12 generations, then that means I'm Métis, right? Or it means I'm mixed and and thus Indigenous. Um, now, you have an actual Métis nation. Uh, people, if you will, that are based, uh, were historically based largely out of, um, the s- southern Manitoba, but also right into North Dakota, uh, the Turtle Mountain Chippewa tribe. There are lots of actual Métis people who live there now who intermarried with Chippewa people. Um, but they're, uh, that's actually the community with the largest number of Mishif speakers and Mishif is, a language that mixes French and Plains Cree primarily. Um, and so the largest number, I think there are a few hundred speakers at Turtle Mountain Chippewa um, uh, reservation. And so that's just across the border, right, from Manitoba. So there, this sort of Plains based Metis people are recognized um, by the Canadian state and by different Canadian provinces, by the courts, by First Nations people, because historically they had alliances with First Nations people. So if we look at um, specifically in, in Manitoba, then into Saskatchewan, they had a military alliance with the Plains Cree and the Soto, who are sort of the, the northern Chippewa, if you will, um, and also the, um, the Assiniboine, um, so the Nakota. As they're also known and so they had a, a military alliance going back uh, to about 1820 and that uh, military alliance the iron confederacy uh existed for decades and that was first nations sort of recognizing their kin and also the metis as a distinct people um and so that's really what marks the the metis um you know as a distinct indigenous people a post-contact people Right? They're not the only post contact people uh, in sort of Native America, if you will, um, but they're one in, in Canada that um, is well known because they lead a couple of major resistances along with First Nation allies in 1869 uh, 70 and also in 1885. Uh, the 1885 battle um is is uh, the the first battle really where the canadian military um is used uh domestically um within within the boundaries of what is now canada uh, in this case against indigenous people and they massacre uh, dozens and dozens of of fighters but also a lot of uh, innocent people and bystanders who are metis and first nations um on the plains in what is now saskatchewan so um that's what makes the sort of western metis metis unique and recognized in Canada. Now, what what the Eastern Métis, and I, and I say that, you know, I should say Eastern Métis in quotation marks, because it's really a recent invention. Um, so we're talking the last decade, two decades at most, where, um, you know, there are these academics, these sort of political leaders of this movement who are arguing that, in fact, there were mixed people um, in New France back in the 16 and 1700s who predate even the Western Métis, and the fact that they were these mixed people means that um, today they have descendants who should consider themselves Eastern Métis. The major problem with that argument is the people who are mixed either completely over time, and we're talking here hundreds of years, they either completely um, assimilated to mainstream society, um, and so there are Québécois people, French, Canadian, etc., or... Um, in the case of the sort of early contact period, you know, these these Frenchmen would have children with uh, First Nations women, and those children were raised in their First Nations communities, right? And so they completely integrated into First Nations communities, and so their descendants today are, are largely still considered First Nations. So whether they're Abenaki, whether they're Algonquin, you know, different uh, different Anishinaabe people. Um, whether they're, you know, uh, Inu, which are the Indigenous peoples on the North Shore of the St. Lawrence. Um, And so, you know, there's this, I I hesitate to call it a debate because, I mean, it's fairly settled in terms of what you read in academia when it comes to Indigenous Native American studies, um, when it comes to First Nations positions on this. The federal government doesn't recognize any of these groups in the Eastern Métis movement, and neither do any of the provincial governments, so they have no recognition whatsoever, um, except because of this focus on self-identification on an institutional level, um, individuals who are part of this movement do often get resources you know, jobs, uh, scholarships, bursaries, um, other forms of funding that are reserved for Indigenous peoples, that Indigenous peoples have fought, you know, for quite a long time to have in place um, to support, you know, their needs in their community. And so we do unfortunately see um, a lot of jobs um, in the federal government, in academia, in the arts, funding agencies, and etc., going to individuals who really aren't considered indigenous by anybody except themselves and the groups that they're members of.
1: Mm. In a recent interview, I I viewed you saying something about the appropriation appropriation of symbols such as flags. um, Mm. And as you say, ID cards are now, people are interested here actually because some movement of Mati is happening in States, Vermont and New Hampshire,
2: other places.
1: What happens when you become a member of this? Eastern Métis nation, yeah. so to speak, and what brings about these identity cards
2: or identity? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the the Eastern Métis movement, as I call it, and, and others do as well, um, is it's not really centralized. So there isn't like a, a specific body, you know, there are lots of different organizations who I would, Categorized as part of that movement. And one of the things that's, um, I think, become more obvious over time as the sort of opposition to um, their claims has really uh, become uh, more, I guess, mainstream is that many of the individuals involved have started to shift their claims. So instead of just saying they're Metis or Eastern Metis or whatever the case is, they've started to say that they're Algonquin. They've started to say that they're Mi'kmaq. They've started to say that they're Abenaki right and so there's a way in which they're making the claim based on the same uh they're all french descendants so they're all people who are descended from the earliest french um colonizers in new france so essentially in the 1600s uh the early 1600s and so they they're they're, we all share the same ancestors to some extent because it was a quite a small group of french people who um settled uh, in New France, compared to what happened in New England, for instance, and what happened in in, in the South and Virginia. And so, you know, there's a, a small group of people. We share many of those key people as ancestors, which means that we're all going to be related to um, a handful of, uh, or part of a handful of of the Indigenous women who married Frenchmen in the early, in the actual, the first few decades. There weren't that many women who did. Um, but those who did, for instance, I'm related to three Algonquin women who married Frenchmen, those three women were all born before 1650. And that's about the average for a French descendant today. For a long time, you know, for hundreds of years, uh, that didn't in any way make you Indigenous. Mm -hmm. Um, it made you, you know, Quebecois, French Canadian, depending on where you lived. Um, but more recently we see that people make the shift. And I think that's that's what brought me to the um, so-called Abenaki tribes in Vermont and New Hampshire was um, the fact that they were French descendants. So these are Franco-Americans, people who are descendant from uh, Quebecois immigrants to um, New England in the, basically the movement really starts uh, in the 1820s and it goes on all the way to about 1910. And so um, historians today... Um, estimate that about 500,000 Quebecois people immigrated to the United States, Uh, it's not to the United States, to New England, there's some other people who go to the Midwest, but uh, 500,000 and and that's why you'll see in states like Maine and Rhode Island and Massachusetts, Vermont, you'll see a lot of French Canadian last names, you know, so governors um, who have, you know, Quebecois names, uh, or at least last names, maybe not first names, but sometimes. Um, And so that's both historically and in the present. Uh, And and that's because of the proximity, obviously, of the border. Um, You know, the fact that these New England states are on the border with Quebec largely, but also with New Brunswick, where there's a lot of French descendants, Acadians as well. And so that's really what brought me to um, the Vermont and New Hampshire groups was, hey, wait a second, this sounds a lot like what's happening in my research in the Canadian provinces. But instead of saying that they're Métis, um, or Algonquin, they're saying they're Abenaki because they live in the historical territory of the A- Abenaki people, and politically, that's the claim that makes the most sense. Now, yeah, yeah, and 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 what I what I I just recently published an article in uh, the American Indian Culture and Research Journal, which is published out of UCLA, and. Um, you know, I did a deep dive, I guess you could say, um, into the sort of records of these uh, Abenaki tribes in Vermont in particular. And what became really, really telling is that in everything that they have presented and we're talking literally um, at this point, thousands of pages, they did a petition for federal recognition our federal acknowledgement in 1982 an addendum in 1986, another addendum in 95, and then they got the rejection in 2007. They did a state recognition sort of paperwork once that sort of process was started in 2010. And in all this documentation that they presented, they've never once had to or even attempted to substantiate their claims genealogically even though one would expect that that would be kind of important to and it is important to the federal acknowledgement process. And that's why they, they were rejected. They weren't able to demonstrate that they're actually the descendants of the Abenaki people who lived in Vermont in the um, 17 and 1800s. And they're not, they claim that they're uh, the descendants of a hidden Abenaki community of, and, and their claims have shifted. In 1982, it was 15 families. In n- 1986, it became 200 families um, in northwestern Vermont. So all of a sudden, their historical community grew, you know, we're looking at 10, 12 times uh, mm-hmm. with the matter of four years. And then back in 1995, they they brought it back to about 20 families. Um, and so their, their own claims have shifted remarkably over the years. And it's because honestly they're they're making it up you know they have tried as much as they can i i imagine that there are people involved in this movement who believe that they're the descendants of abenaki people um there are others who might know that they're not and so they find ways to kind of avoid ever having to discuss that openly and or um any questions that might be uncomfortable about that but um you know, when you look at the actual records, it's very clear that they are the descendants of white French Canadians who came to Vermont in the 1800s. Errol
1: LaRue is an associate professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, French Canadian from north Northern Ontario.
0: my window, there's a tiredness in my bones, I feel helpless and alone, deep within our mother's womb, lie the bodies of children, get unmarked hidden to That's what they say that you'll get when you have kids, and I did. Bruises and fresh open wounds reveal stories that were told to me in dreams. I knew it. All Sit in his armchair. Sometimes at night I'd catch him crying, sitting there. He cried because when he was a kid, he spoke his own language and then lost his voice and part of his own lineage. This land is your land. This land is my land This land was made for you and me For a choice of words by Woody Guthrie This land was taken And now everyone sees One family had their land stolen The other was stolen from their land day.
1: Stolen Lands by Julian Taylor from the album Beyond the Reservoir. And welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is T.O. Ghost Horse. We continue the second half hour with Daryl LaRue with an article published in the American Indian Cultural Research Journal, State Recognition and the Dangers of Race Shifting. Daryl LaRue is an associate professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, French-Canadian from Northern Ontario. Just a note, you mentioned 1820-1910, 500,000 influx of French-Canadians. So it it seems to be like, okay, at this time, uh, in 1900, there were less than a quarter of a million Native people Mm -hmm. left in the United States from all the Mm. decimation and, and massacre so mm-hmm. I wanted to actually go back to where, what are they protecting? Because I'm all this time you're speaking of, like, what are they really protecting? What's going on mm-hmm. there? And when you talk to them, you get, even I get a backlash, and I like, okay, this is meaning there is something hidden to me, because mm-hmm. you know they they could actually set down what which we'll talk about later this um, mutual agreement of understanding that came between the Western Métis and the First Nations. I really want to know what's going on underneath all of this, why Uh they are doing this.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately I do too, which is partly why I'm working on this. And, you know, I come up with a few, um, I think, interrelated explanations um, in this recent article. Um, You know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, suggesting that i have the answer because i think it's very complex there's obviously some um some complex sort of cycle psychological social psychological um uh, things going on here that are a little bit outside of my expertise but I'll I'll give it a try and you can tell me what you think (laughs) and so I mean the the three major lines that I take in in the research there's the big picture and so what happens um in in the 50s 60s especially in the U.S. into the 70s is that you have um this sort of civil rights movement that's shaking things up politically to some extent you know And, and some some people would say a lot some people would say not enough but it's shaking things up. And that also includes the Red Power movement, obviously. Um, and so you have this civil rights movement. And one of the one of the things that we see happening, um, and sociolog- sociologists in the U.S. have documented this um, through the census and other means, is that in the U.S. you have all of these white Americans who start to um, hy- hyphenate their identities. And so they start reclaiming a particular sort of place in Europe or, you know, European identity. So you have Irish Americans and Italian Americans and Polish Americans. And, you know, the the list goes on. So these um, all of a sudden, these white Americans are trying to turn themselves into ethnic minorities. And one of the reasons why, you know, sociologists explain that happening is because this is at a time when Um, You know, uh, African Americans, Native Americans, uh, Asian Americans, etc. are really pushing back at the history of racism in the United States um, and the history of colonialism. And so white people, um, in a way, take a step back and think, well, if I can disassociate myself from whiteness and from dominance, um, maybe that's something that would be helpful to my sort of social and political identity. And so you really see the the the, the creation of all these organizations that are there to uh, help white people connect with their European roots away from whiteness so that you can kind of say, well, my people came here and they, they 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 suffered the potato famine, right? They were refugees. They were people who suffered too. How could they be colonizers? How could they be? They had no choice but to leave. They had to flee etc. Right. So you can imagine that that's a a particularly attractive strategy. And again, it's not that people sit down and they think, what am I going to do here? It's a social movement again, right? There's things that are happening in society, and people start changing their identities, the way they understand history. And so that's one thing that happens. You see that there's a really big move away from just this kind of white identity. And the the irony is that their ancestors, so these Irish people and Polish people and etc., who arrive in the you know latter half of the 1800s, they did everything they could to be considered white, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other thing that happens is those who are uh, are able to sort of trace their ancestry even further back. So whether it's to the Mayflower and the New England, you know, the Puritans, or whether it's down uh, in uh, Virginia, Jamestown, etc., they they start finding these uh, quote unquote Indian grandmothers. And so we see this in we see this in the census. There's been really great studies of the census that show that um, by 1980, the number of people who are identifying as having Native American ancestry, uh, it, it it's off the charts. We're at five point two million people in 1980, right? But there's historically, there's no more than a million in the United States in the previous census. So who are all these people? And what sociologists and demographers have shown is that those people who are claiming that they have Native American ancestry, but still claim that their quote unquote race is white, and there's millions of them, um, they're they're middle-class white people mm-hmm. who are unhappy, you know, with their lot in life um, for whatever reason. And so they, they start to sort of claim at least hesitantly they're not saying they're native american but they're saying they have native american ancestry but they're still identifying as white now that group today has completely shifted the demographic makeup if you read a census because they're almost 20 million now in the last census imagine right that's that's an, an enormous amount of people in the united states who are saying they have native american ancestry when really we're talking about a native american population of federally recognized tribal members of you know one and a half to two million people at most And so big changes that are happening at that point in time, Um, and so that's one of the ways that I try to explain what's happening, is that there's a particular sort of series of sort of social and political changes that lead, in this case, white Americans to desire a different identity. And so my reading of that and the reading that sociologists present is that really it's an escape from any sort of accountability in these sort of racist relations, colonial relations that exist. And so that's really the beginning of these groups in Vermont. It starts uh, sitting around. uh, This is according to their own petition in 1982 to the federal government, but it starts by um, a French Canadian man, Homer St. Francis and a, a few of his buddies sitting around a kitchen table. Um, talking about, you know, who they are and how poor they are and what they can do about that in the the late 1960s. And it leads to them incorporating in 1974 and calling themselves Abenaki. Um, Because the Abenaki where they live, Swanton, uh, Vermont, in the northwest, along uh, sort of the county that's right right uh, alongside Lake Champlain. Mm -hmm. So across Mm -hmm. the lake from New York State, um, they um that's uh, it's actually Swanton is where there was a historical Abenaki village in the 1700s so they imagine themselves as replacing the Abenaki and being the actual Abenaki today which is you know that's that's a function of settler colonialism you know a uh, settlers imagining that they're the, the real natives and so it's at that particular moment um in the in the 60s and 70s where this movement is birthed um it doesn't really take on too much import until about the end of the 70s and then into the early 80s when they um, they submit their petition for federal acknowledgement so just to give you a sense that's one of the lines i guess of argument that i take the social and political sort of of a framework another line that i i look at is um one that um I guess kind of makes sense on some level, but it wasn't one that I was particularly aware of prior to doing this research. Uh, So what what people who've been studying um, these sort of these new movements have uh, demonstrated is that um, states with uh, the smallest proportion of Native Americans and or the smallest number of federally recognized tribes are the states that are inundated with these claims. So either new false groups, so especially in the southeast, but not only, also you can see here in the northeast, um, and or uh, individuals on the census making these claims. So it's much more likely if you live in a state uh, that has very few Native Americans relative to others, that um, you're going to feel comfortable saying you're Native American, you're not going to be challenged Uh, You know, less people around you are going to know what it means to be Native American, what it means to live on a reservation, what it means to, you know, be part of a tribal government. And so it's easier to get away with these claims, which means people are more likely to do it. And that's what you see happening. Uh, in Vermont, right? So Vermont doesn't have, uh, a federally recognized tribe. Uh, the Abenaki, who are the descendants of the Abenaki people who lived throughout New England, they live in Quebec. They live on two reserves, which are, they're called in Canada. Um, Odenac, which has about 2,000, a little bit more than 2,000 citizens. Um, and Wolanac, which is just down the uh, St. Lawrence River from Odenac. And, Many of, and this is something that's key, many of their citizens. So the Abenaki people do live in the United States. So there's a large population, a couple hundred people who live in the Albany um, urban sort of district, Uh, and they're the descendants of an Abenaki population largely that lived in the Adirondacks uh, in the 1800s. And then uh, there's also a a large population in Waterbury, uh, Connecticut, about 100. Um, and then also a few hundred in Orleans County, primarily in Vermont. And these are all individuals who um, have Indian status, um, according to the Canadian government, but they're dual citizens, they're Canadian and Americans, and most of them have only ever lived in the United States. And so the Abenaki people haven't left the United States. It's true that they're based in Canada, but um, the story that the uh, fake tribes tell in New Hampshire and Vermont is that they completely left And they're the descendants of a population that was hiding. And so they're not related to the quote-unquote Canadian Abenaki. Um, And so it becomes sort of a national issue, you know, because there's Mm -hmm. this border that has really uh, infringed upon Abenaki sovereignty. And that's been very useful for these fake groups in Vermont and New Hampshire to say, well, what do they have to say about us? They're in Canada, they're Canadian. You know, whereas their territory is just as much in the United States as it is in Canada. Um, and obviously they're not the only tribe to have that reality right there are many of them throughout um the west in particular where uh, for instance even where you are in new york with the mohawk right Mm -hmm. um who have territory across the border and that makes things complicated um and so the lack of a tribal presence um in a state really dictates how much um this sort of type of movement can take off and so um by taking off that can lead to um these problematic state recognition processes, and that's the third part of my argument. So the first part again is these changes that are happening with white identities. The second part is the lack of um, of a Native American presence in a state, mm-hmm. uh, in this case Vermont, New Hampshire, and then the third one is uh, the state recognition process itself. And in Vermont, I, I think I point out in my article, it's it's full of conflicts of interest, um, and so for whatever reason, in 2010, once they fail at federal recognition, um, the the sort of uh, the, uh, the House, the Senate in Vermont seems open to this idea of recognizing these tribes because they're not going to be able to open a casino. Right. And that's the fear in a lot of the, the places in the Northeast. That was apparently the goal of the founder of the organization back in the 60s and 70s, um, this idea of, you know, making themselves wealthy through um, a casino. Um, but in any case, they set up this state recognition process with um, uh, basically a commission for Native American affairs that's completely staffed by people from these fake organizations. They are they get to replace themselves also. So they're, they, you know, they can name people, only they can name people to the commission, and um, so they just name their family members and or people who are in their so-called tribe. Um, They have brought in outsiders once in a while. There is actually a Native American woman, I think she might be Lakota, who was on the commission and recently stepped down because she said these people are fakes. You know, I can't work with them anymore. Um, So you take a risk when you bring in actual Native Americans to work with you because they might actually call you out, right? And that's what happened. (laughs) Um, And so it's, you know, even the the outside, um, the reviewers, so to be able to get recognized, you put together an application, and there are these three outside independent reviewers. But in my article, I demonstrate that six of the seven reviewers who've been hired for these four tribes have been recognized. Um, They all work for the tribes. They've worked for them in the past, one of them, not only as a tribal member but he wrote the the applications from two other tribes and he reviewed other ones you know and he was on the commission at one point and so it's just it's really kind of a joke you know like it's once you start kind of scratching at the surface and you're like well how did this happen and you're left wondering like who who allowed this to happen there's no um there's no rigor in the process there's no independence like I said, it it makes the state of Vermont like uh, it makes it a bit of a laughing stock, really, um, oh, the state recognition process. And so state recognition processes aren't necessarily problematic on their own, um, but, you know, they've, they've really started to come in as well since the 70s and 80s. Um, you see that there are more and more states with state recognition processes. but the states with the the states with the largest populations of federally recognized tribes, they don't have state recognition processes because those tribes lobby them hard to say no, you don't get to recognize if there are other Native Americans in our territory. We get mm-hmm. to do that. Right. And so uh, like Oklahoma does not have a process, North Dakota, South Dakota do not have processes. Right. And so it's not surprising that a place like Vermont that may like to think of itself as a bit progressive as, you know, sort of fighting the good fight of social justice or like, well, we're going to put in a process that really just allows these people to decide who's part of their community. Um, And meanwhile, these people are, are white Franco-Americans. It's, it's
1: incredible. This I I'm, I'm just kind of like queasy a little bit, trying to <laughs> figure out what where, what question to ask next. And in yeah. the few minutes we have left, uh, Daryl Larue, mm-hmm. is, um uh-huh. these ideas that are very racist, the social phenomenon, their uh, their populations of more more, you know, as you said, several hundred thousand, tens of thousands of Métis mm-hmm. that are much bigger than First Nations numbers themselves, and. I'm getting to a place now where I'm really thinking about the in the United States is called pretend Indians mm-hmm. um, and they're being called out. And as you say, they're appropriating. And this fits into a great. Uh, Vine Delora quote that I'm going to mention after we talk and it's hiding, hiding the racism and the colonialism, but it's ongoing. And mm-hmm. this is not going to go away because of some ruling because the people themselves want to usurp any native it's, it's been since they got here mm-hmm. right that we weren't real yeah. no, no human beings yeah. um goes back to the 1493 papal bulls it's yeah. ongoing. So what yeah. do we do as native people and you you've seen this as a as a French Canadian you mm-hmm. know without the border let's let's erase the border because this is mm-hmm.
2: both both sides of that border right well i mean in my work one thing that i i I try to do is to think about the the bigger like the problem that's why i talk about it as a movement um and i think that one one thing that can happen when you're working um to you know expose the inner workings of a particular movement is you you definitely can get caught up in um in the individuals who are involved in that movement you know and trying to like focus on i don't know You know, whatever the case is, doing research on individuals, figuring out what their claims are, you know, figuring out how they're harming other people they work with, particularly Indigenous peoples, because that's what we see. Um, And and I'm not saying that that shouldn't be done. I just think that my approach more often than not has really been to think about this as a social and a political phenomenon that needs those types of solutions. Right. It needs social and political solutions, not not just um, focus on sort of bad apples, if you will. Mm -hmm. And because the more that you scratch it, the more you realize, wow, you know, this is wow, you know, it's a huge problem. Uh, There are so many people making these claims who have influential positions, who make decisions that are going to impact the lives of indigenous peoples and have been impacting them often in quite, quite negative ways. And so I think that it's important not to lose sight of that um, and to come up with. You know, solutions, ideas, approaches that um, put put as much sort of power into the hands of Indigenous peoples, Native Americans, into the hands of tribes, into the hands of organizations run by Native Americans, um, and that we trust that Native Americans, First Nations people where I am, they understand who's indigenous to their territories
0: Yeah,
2: you know they understand who's part of their communities they often um, are looking for those members of communities who've been taken who you know have uh, were taken away because of different policies they're you know generous in terms of what i've seen in the conversations i have in terms of welcoming these those people back and so i think that um our institutions definitely need to understand that um they they really need to heed the voices of, of native americans and the concerns about tribal sovereignty and self-determination that are really at the forefront of of opposition to this movement mm, this is so great
1: thank you for for this time daryl larue and the article you're talking about would you repeat that so people can really look it up and do their own research
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the article is called State Recognition and the Dangers of Race Shifting. It actually had a subtitle, but it got dropped. The Case of Vermont was the subtitle. I don't know how it got dropped or when it did, but it did. Um, But it looks specifically at Vermont, and there's some ties to the New Hampshire groups. It's in the American Indian Culture and Research Journal, their latest issue, which you can access easily online, and it's open access. So you can see um, the entire journal now is open access. Uh, You can get the PDF on your computer. or You can just Check it out on their, on their web browser.
1: Can I give it a subtitle? How can yeah, one, what, how, what would it be? How can you live with yourself? <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: I'll take yeah. that under advisement but for another, another version. Good protection for you
1: and your good thoughts yeah. that you're sending out there to, to really protect the, the Native people here. A mm. responsibility we have as Native people is mm. basically and primarily the Earth. Where are you as Indigenous peoples that you claim, are you showing up like places mm. like Standing Rock? Are you showing up when the pipeline and you know the damage to the land comes? Those are my thoughts. But yes. thank you again for helping us understand, even those of us who are behind the modern information that comes out, because yeah. the community at home is concerned about how are we treating yeah. the earth. So this is all part of that understanding that we have an orig- origin to earth, and people say we're all indigenous to earth but i say no are you behaving as if you're indigenous and protecting the earth and stopping damage that we are doing as right. a species but it's an honor daryl again thank you so much for thank doing you so your much work, you,
2: being here i really appreciate it yes. good luck with the show yeah. thank <laughs> you right. so much all right bye now
1: I'd like to quote from the book Playing Indian by Vine Deloria's son, Philip Deloria. This story is a very different one. It is more tightly linked to destiny, to Indians who simply vanish, to the relativity of culture and meaning, to a long-standing license to make oneself over. Americans have often been inclined to keep the narratives of American nationhood and American character away from each other and yet the two stories are inseparable. Playing Indian then reflects one final paradox, a defining pairing of American truth with American freedom rests on the ability to wield power against Indians, social, military, economic, and political, while simultaneously drawing power from them. Indianness may have existed primarily as a cultural artifact in American society, but has also helped create those other forms of power which have been turned back on Native people. The dispossessing of Indians exists in tension with being aboriginally true. The embracing of Indians exists in equal tension with the freedom to become new. And the terms are interchangeable, intricate relations between destruction and creativity for both Indian and non-Indian Americans are themselves suspended In an uneasy alliance. And so, while Indian people have lived out a collection of historical nightmares in the material world, they have also haunted a long night of American dreams. As many Native people have observed, to be American is to be unfinished. And although that state is powerful and creative, it carries with it nightmares all its own. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokusen Ghost Horse, Doksha Akewa Chiangtelo.